Bulls rush on the links. In your life have you seen anything like that? Is it his time? Yes! And Ron laps! Another one has landed! At the 72nd hole, this time for Ron! Now on the team, your host from Anaheim, California, Trent Rush and Nico Bellini. Well, it is the biggest party on the PGA Tour happening right here at our studios at Angel Stadium. I don't know what's going on out there in the desert of the waste management. I know that they were lining up at 2.15 this morning, but we're excited to be on the air uh, with you guys here uh, this afternoon. My name is Trent Rush. we got Nico Bellini, as always, hanging out in studio. Um, boy, what a uh, interesting time in golf today. And we're going to get into this a little bit. Um, boy, I mean, we talk about the excitement happening on the PGA Tour and, and also what may be happening overseas and maybe yeah. some of that excitement being some of the negative headlines that have come out of late. By the way, we are only a week away from Riviera and uh, the Genesis Invitational, which we are going to be a part of. We're going to be out there. We're going to be broadcasting live from the rib. So come on by, say hello. We got a great setup uh, just outside the clubhouse. It's it's going to be awesome overlooking the first tee. Uh, it's going to be sensational, and it's one of the best events on the PGA Tour calendar, which brings up the discussion of maybe how many great events truly are on the PGA <laughs> calendar. But the Genesis Invitational, no doubt, is one of them, and it's going to be fun uh, to be a part of that. That is a course that I know is near and dear to your heart, Nico. I love it. Uh, I've always loved Riviera. You've played it a lot especially with your time at USC uh, when you were just a dominant player for the Trojans. Um, let's talk about some of the, the craziness um, in golf going on right now. First of all, did you see the putt that Harold Varner made last week, the 90-footer to win the Saudi Invitational? Are you kidding me? You know, it's it's one of those things. People don't realize how difficult that putt was. It was straight downwind. It was whatever, 60, 70, 80 feet, I don't know how long it is. But it was uphill early, and then it flattened, and then it was up a shelf, and then downhill at the very end. You kind of you call those like up and over putts, right? Those are some of the most difficult putts to judge the speed yeah. because you have to hit it firm to get it up over that ridge. But then you have to put the brakes on right when it gets over, and he's downwind. So I'm looking at his situation. It's very much like Bo Hostler, his situation last week at Pebble Beach. What do you do? So Harold Varner, he's one back. With one to go, a two putt gets into a playoff, right? And obviously, he probably wasn't thinking about making it. He was like, "Let me just get it as close as possible to leave it anywhere to have a chance to send it to try to try to have a tap in to send it to a playoff." Yeah, to yeah. extra holes. But that putt was incredible. Again, the wind has such an effect on those type of putts with that strength, that speed of the wind. And I mean, it, it was incredible when I saw it go in. I'm sure. You saw his reaction. It's incredible. I kind of wish it was at a more prominent event on U.S. soil because that would have been all over the Golf Channel, all over ESPN, all over any sports network syndicate. It would have been incredible. And the reaction, I mean, I don't know. They'll say there's about 1,000 people. And of the 1,000 people there, 500 of them were behind you know glass windows. They so couldn't really see and feel the reaction, right? Like Tiger at Torrey when he made that putt or... Phil, remember a couple years ago when he yeah. made that putt at Riv in the playoff and the crowd's right there on top of him in the natural amphitheater. It adds so much to the drama, but good for Harold Vaughn, man. That guy grinds. He's got so much out of a game, and I'm sure, 
I mean, I guess it's it's a feel good story for the tour, but not really for the tour. Yeah, because it happened in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it happened in Saudi Arabia, yeah. which you know that opens up a whole other can of worms. Uh, we're gonna get to that. I, I want to just let's keep talking about that putt for a moment because there were a couple of things you talked about the up and over and you're right you you got to be thinking i mean it's a 90 footer i mean you're thinking layup he was just on the was he on the fringe or yeah or just was, off the green yeah. just off the green so, but just barely but you're right the timing of that and then it, it ends up going in with with pretty decent pace i mean it, it, go, it, it goes in at, yeah in in the hole exactly how you want it to which i don't know how that's possible from 90 feet but when you're judging wind like on a normal putt, if you got a a, a normal twenty foot putt, you know you have a, a fifteen mile an hour cross breeze. You know how much when when you're trying to line up a putt. We've talked about reading greens before and, and the art that comes with putting, but how much time do you spend like really trying to evaluate the wind? Because we know how much the wind can do in the air. How much is it really doing on the ground? I mean, I, I don't know. Bryce could probably answer that question, but it's all a feel, right? And it depends on what time of day. If it's early morning. There's a little bit of dew on the green. The wind probably isn't going to affect the ball as much as you would think. But if it's a late afternoon, you're in the desert conditions with bent greens. They're a little burnt out, a little baked out. You can sort of see the um, the, the resolution, the designation of on the greens, like different color changes. Mm. You get a feel for it. And there are certain segments of the putt that change. So early on the flat, there might be no grass. It might be a little dead. And then there's thick grass going up. And then on the way down, it might be baked again. There's so many little intuitive thoughts that go into reading that putt. It's not a calculation for me. There's no type of calculation I'm looking into. Like, all right, I'm going to play it 20 feet short of what I normally do. It's just a feel. And again, bent greens, baked out in tour conditions versus Bermuda greens on the slower end, it probably won't have as much an effect. So it's just a, it's all feel. So I, for much of my life... As a golfer, I have been a horrendous putter. Recently, I've become just a below-average putter. And I, I think one of the things that I feel like I've noticed, uh, certainly feel over the course of a day, what you're talking about when you're getting the read there, but I think also understanding sometimes there's not just one line. Actually, almost all times there's not just one line. There are, There's usually different paths to making a putt. Oh, there's and, multiple lines. Right, and, mm. and I, think, I think understanding mm. that is an important thing. Like for me, I, I almost spend not no time, but very little time trying to figure out the slope and what the break's going to be. I my only thought when I'm walking into a green, speed. Speed is everything to me. Speed is everything because if you have good speed, you're always going to have a tap. And if you look at the golfers from 50, 60 years ago, they all all they want to care about is two putting holes, right? Because the greens were slow, and we've talked about it before. The, mm-hmm. With slow greens. Sometimes it's more difficult to two-putt because the ball is hitting the brakes when it stops. So when you make a putt on slower greens, you can hit the back of the cup or it's going to stop short. You can't trickle it in like we do today. Yeah. So it was important to two-putt. And speed, you're always going to have like a little kick in. And there's a great little video I saw many years ago with Tom Kite. And he was talking about putting. And he struggled with it. And most tour players... You go through everything with putting. You're a great putter. You're a bad putter. You, you, you look at different techniques. You do the uh, the arc putting stroke, the, the Dave Pell straight back, straight through. You try it all. Left hand low, split hand claw, etc. And then you kind of come full circle oftentimes. And this was Tom Kite's full circle moment. He's sitting there talking about reading eight to ten footers. And he's like, oh, I just throw it out there somewhere. He's like, I do not care where the line is. I'm mm. just throwing it out there somewhere. 
And it's like, well, what do you mean throwing out the somewhere? He goes, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out the somewhere. It's going to go left. There's 50 lines. If I go firm, it's inside right. If I go this pace, it's right edge. If I go this pace, it's ball out. If I go this pace, two balls out. There's 50 lines. So I'm going to throw it out there somewhere and just let instincts take over. Because he was trying to get back right to putting as a kid. Sure. So that's the way I look at putting. And, and it's so difficult because people like Faxon. Faxon does a very good job of describing that way with putting. Then you got guys like Bryson. You know, and then you see a putt like Bo, uh, not Bo, sorry, Bo Hostler last week at Pebble. That putt he made on 17 or 16, there was like a, a warm cam view, and it was just pure with the line rolling over. Yeah. Like, it, it was so money. So you see them think, oh, i got to have the perfect line and roll that end over end. I mean, it's, it's each to their own. Whatever they want to see, line, whatever line they want to see and how they want to approach putting. But you got to be careful when you start missing putts to get more technical and more precise because yeah. it just gets more and more difficult. You can say, oh, I'm just going to throw it out there and you, you t- let instinct take over. That's great when you're rolling them in. That, that, that's great until you leave them, you know, you put one three feet by and then make the, miss the comeback. Mm-hmm. Or like then, all, then all of a sudden it's like, well, it wait changes. a minute. Yeah, you're, and, and then it gets psychological. We've spent a, a time or two talking about that and we are far from done uh, with the history of this show and talking about uh, the psychology that comes with golf. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, boy, the hot story on tour going on right now, what is the PGA going to do about what's happening with this potential tour in Saudi Arabia? We'll discuss all of that when we come back. He's Nico Bellini. I'm Trent Rush. This is Rush on the Lakes. You're listening to Rush on the Lakes with your host, Trent Rush. I want to dive into what's happening with the tour right now. Charlie Hoffman upset about a ruling, and then he had to drop again. It goes back to water. I mean, and he's got all this thing. And he went from not being thrilled with a rule to all of a sudden coming out hard. I mean, hard at the PGA Tour, and it's escalated into wants to go to Saudi Arabia. We've talked about, you know, Phil Mickelson is is kind of made the threat of of going, and and there's like a lot of chirping, a lot of rumors about guys using this. I'm having a hard time seeing the difference of what's real about guys that might actually go, and what's a threat. The only thing I do know in this, I think that nobody looks good. I don't think any player looks good at the idea of trying to justify going to Saudi. I don't think anybody looks good in that. And I also think the PGA Tour doesn't look great either because they're now getting exposed by their own. Their players are unhappy with what's happening on tour. Again, is this leverage? Is this a giant negotiation? Whatever it is, it stinks. And I don't really care for it. And I'm having a really hard time trying to determine the difference. You know... People love drama. People love seeing the drama. So I read that post by Charlie Hoffman and the Saudi. And again, it's just some mundane drop that trickled into the hazard. Yeah, did the tour maybe spray paint it a little too close to the hazard? Or did they not like actually go and drop the ball to see if it would trickle in to the hazard again? Yeah, maybe they let that slip. But you're right. It goes from that to I'm now boycotting the tour and I'm going to go play in Saudi Arabia. That, to me, sounds like either a rallying cry, like he's already made his decision and he's trying to get other guys to join with him to make these ridiculous excuses as to why the the tour doesn't, you know, quote-unquote, protect these guys. You know, after Charlie Hoffman's made $32 million over his career, 
and he's had one top 10 finish in a major, like you're telling me he's not taken care of with that money on top of the sponsorship money, he is very well taken care of and he's going to have a very good pension plan. Sure, there could be more money than get, but how much money is, is like, how much do you guys really need? And it's, I think we're seeing the true colors. Like, I would be a lot more, I would respect these guys a lot more if they just came out and said, it's about the money. It's too much money to turn down, and I'm having trouble making a decision on that. That's all it takes. It's like, because it, it, it is a significant amount of money. I mean, there's rumors now with Bryson that they're going to give him $250 million to be the right representative of this tour. And if he came out and said, you know what, guys, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and I'm I'm having trouble saying no to that. If you come out and say, I'm given an offer that is generational wealth, that I'll be able to take care of my family for the next 100, 200 guaranteed. years, guaranteed, guaranteed. Yeah. and I get to live a lifestyle where I never have to worry about money ever again. He already, I mean, these guys already have a, a very great lifestyle in that regard. But to have no stress and no pressure when it comes to anything financial, right? If you were if you were presented with that opportunity and and you were to come out and say, hey, this is something I'm evaluating because it's an offer that I'm going to have a really hard time saying no to, it, that's relatable. I think that anybody could understand that. Now, the, you know, the offers that us civilians get aren't anywhere close mm-hmm. to the dollars. But I think that the idea of someone presenting you an offer for maybe a place you don't really want to go, but it's such a great offer that, that maybe you got to think about it. I think we all can relate to that in some way. So I think there's something to be said for coming out and, and being honest on that front. And it's the, I think, the less stress. Because remember, this is... $250 million. I mean, that somebody tweeted that number. It could be 150 250 whatever it is. But it's generational wealth. Guaranteed money. So look at the Anthony Kim example, right? So when Anthony Kim got hurt and, you know, there was that idea floating around that he'd get the $10 million if he didn't play for an X number of years, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you know, that's, that's a lot of money at that time. This is 10, 12 years ago now. The stress is gone from the daily tour life. So... Bryson on the PGA Tour could go make that money, but he's got to grind. He's got to earn it. His sponsors, he's going to have sponsors, but those contracts renew every few years, right? They're not 20-year contracts, so he's got to go out and perform. If he goes and they guarantee this money to play these 10 events per year, like look how much back he gets in life and the stress. Like, I don't have to play well because I'm taken care of financially. Yes, maybe the drive might disappear a little bit, I don't know. The tour has to find a way to make it both work. Again, these are veiled threats. I don't know if the Saudi thing's really going to happen. Yeah. You know, we keep hearing rumors about it, but... Well, they're, they're going to have to get guys to commit, so they're stirring this up. And if they get enough guys, it, it has a chance. Yeah. If they get enough guys, this thing has a chance to divide the tour, which is a, a bad thing for everybody. But I also wonder, you know, we, Bryson's offer was monumental, but if you're going to get a player that's ranked... Outside the top fifty, maybe between fifty and hundred, to go on the tour and go. How much more are you going to be able to pay them than what they could potentially make on the PGA Tour? How much? How much more money is that? And and you could say, okay, it's going to be a, a million dollars a year or more. Well, yeah, to you and me, a million dollars a year sounds like a lot of money, but maybe to them, it, it, it's more of like a percentage. So at a certain point, you know, I think about this all the time with like MLB contracts, like a, a you know big time professional mm-hmm. pro sports contracts. You know, oh well, he's he's t- taking five million dollars less. Okay, that, that's one percent. You know what I mean of of what his five hundred million dollar yeah, contract is. Yeah. And then that that's kind of where my mind goes. 
goes on that front. So for 1% or call it 10%, is that worth leaving the United States, flying to go all over the world for all these extra events and the inconvenience that comes in that? Or is it seen as, well, hey, that 10% is enough that I can take care of my crew, I can take care of all my people, um, and, and that's what is being weighed here. So it's like, what is that dollar amount? And not everybody's going to get the Bryson offer. I get why Bryson got his. We talked about this a ton last week. That Bryson has the ability. He's a, he's a different in golf. He's doing something unique. He's exciting. People are drawn to that. He's young, American. All those things are interesting. And I could get why they would want Bryson to be their figurehead. But, again, to make this tour viable, like Riviera, for example, has the top 10 players in the world, the entire top 10, is playing in the field at Riviera next week. I I think that anything shy of doing something like that, it's going to be really tough for this Saudi tour to be viable, and the only way to really make it happen is to get those guys that are between 50 and 100 in the world golf rankings and get those guys to fill out your fields. You can't just do it with Bryson, Mickelson, and 100 guys that are just okay. Yeah, you know, and even... Like those events like Tiger's Tournament, like the Hero World Challenge. You used yeah. to have it here at um, at Sherwood. There's a fun events, but it's like 30 of the top guys. It's not really a deep field. You're not getting those guys that are hungry. It's sure. like vacation tournaments. And that's kind of my impression with the Saudi Tour a little bit is that these guys are already getting paid. So they're all, they're not, you know, sitting there grinding their teeth, you know, to keep their card, et cetera. You don't see those great stories. Or they're trying to etch their names in, in the history of the game, right? To be the next Tiger, to be the next great all-time player. How many majors have this guy won, et cetera. Those comparisons. It's just a money grab, and that edge softens a little bit. So that's kind of my first impression. If they did want to make it work, right, the PJ Tour does see this as a threat. You can't just banish Tour. It's only 10 events from what I've read, I think, that's going to be. It's going to be okay. 10 events. You can still play both. I don't get why you couldn't play both. Um you still have the majors, right, available for the top guys in the world, which they really care about. Then you could field the tour events, the smaller tour events, with that, with those 100 to 200 ranked guys. Um, but financially, it, it is, and the Saudi tour, it's going to be in conjunction with the Asian tour. And I think bits of the European tour, but primarily Asian tour. You can't go start just brand new events at random places in the world. If they were to get Hong Kong, the Australian Open, yeah. um, you know, the King Hassan event in Morocco, like really unique, Kron here in Switzerland as part of the European tour. If you get 10, right, destination sites that have tradition, but now you have Saudi money backing it up, then we're, that's a little different story versus just making up tournaments at brand new golf courses and places in, you know, the Middle East or in Asia that nobody knows about. That's going to be very difficult to sustain. And I don't think it's going to get the eyeballs. I would be curious to see the eyeballs and the numbers of that Saudi tournament. I didn't really watch it. I don't know if you watched it because no. it was kind of. I a saw Var- I saw Varner's putt. <laughs> exactly, you I saw Varner's putt. The course just seemed like a random desert course in the middle of the desert with no distinct features. Right, pebbles what drew me, you know. Yeah, I was more I was more entertained by Bill Murray taking a shot from a fan while you know walking down the fairway, and and there was really great golf at Pebble. And you know the thing about that too is I mean you're getting to see all these other courses, and you know how about Jordan's shot when he almost fell over yeah. um, standing on the cliff there. I mean that 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 that, that kind of stuff is exciting. I mean, and and you're there's also a level of familiarity. 
that's comforting in what you're choosing to watch on television, knowing, oh, it's Pebble Beach. Of course I want to see Pebble Beach. Now, I get when something's new and exciting, you want to check that out too, but maybe you check it out once. You know, but it, it would be unique to see if this tour does happen and these guys on the Saturday tour can play both. And now you have these kind of artificial villains. Like you said, you have the other team now. Oh, I like that. Right? So when, if Bryson or whoever go play the Saturday tour and they come to the U.S. and play, in the end, nobody really cares. You just like to have a villain to a villain. It's like, you know, the Super Bowl this weekend. Do you really, if you're a Rams fan, do you really hate the Bengals players? Yeah, you do for the game. But if you meet them in person, you're going to be fine with them. It's just drama built up for you to kind of have emotions. And the golf tour will be the same way. But these guys in Saudi, it's like, hey, they're going to have a bunch of money in the bank. You know, why not be the villain? It's like not a big deal. It's not truly a villain. You know, it's just kind of a, it's like medieval times. You know, oh, I hate the green team horse versus the blue team horse. You know, or the writer. We don't really hate the guy. It's just a villain. It's like a made-up villain. With sports in the United States, we like winners and losers. It's really hard on a Sunday afternoon when you see a field and a leaderboard with eight guys at the top, and you're okay with any one of them winning. Yeah. You like them all. They're all there's something to like up there. It's really hard to have that drama. You know, and this is this is no knock on Molinari, but I feel like every time that I've had someone I'm rooting for, Molinari is right there in the mix, so I have rooted against him. How many times did we root against, like, Sergio going up on, on Tiger? You know, you're, you're wanting to see Tiger win. Well, wait a minute. Well, where, what's going on here? You need someone to root against. You, you need uh, the, the people you're for and the people you're against. That conflict it's been the same story for 5,000 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, this is eternity has talked about having that kind of a conflict, a, a, a good versus evil, a winner and a loser. And, and to create a kind of team of these, you know, maybe players that I, <laughs> the word keeps coming to mind, deflect, because some, some, <laughs> some people have been really upset yeah. that they're going to deflect from the PGA Tour. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, if they go, not go, I don't care. I'm still going to watch the Masters. They're still yeah, going to be correct. there. You know what I mean? So that, that, that my life doesn't change. But if they want to go, you know, maybe I do root for them a little bit less. You know, if, if Bryson goes and he becomes the face of this league and he's going up against Jordan Spieth, on Sunday at Augusta, yeah, I'm pulling for Jordan. But you know what? I was pulling for Jordan anyway. But the idea of having this is this is the guys on my team and this guy is on their team, it's the same as the Ryder Cup. It's why we were all glued into the Ryder Cup. Yeah. It was so easy to enjoy the Ryder Cup from like the truly pro sports angle of like, okay, this is my team. This is who I'm rooting for. This is the team that's playing us. This is who I'm rooting against. It's very simple, but golf doesn't really have that. It takes a different appreciation. And that's a perfect example, because think about the Ryder Cup, right? How strong, how pro-US is the crowds are here, right? Yeah. But afterwards, if you run to Victor Hovland, what are you going to do? You're probably going to buy him a beer. You're probably going to be good It's just like this artificial drama to root for. So I could see these guys unit a little bit like this. Like, hey, I'm going to go make $250 million dollars we're going to create drama. It's going to help my PIP if I can still get that, whatever it is, on the tour and however those <laughs> semantics work. Yeah, maybe, they, maybe, they, maybe they say no. Yeah. It's I, all, all, <laughs> this, all of a sudden that you go to Saudi, PIP, not happening. Yeah, but again, if I'm the tour, right, do you not want the villain coming into town? You do want the, you, of course you do. And everybody booing against him, all that kind of stuff. I mean, do you remember Tiger when he was clipping, when he was the guy, right, 2004 to 2009? Yeah. He was kind of a villain in some ways. At times, because he was so good, and people got tired of him winning. Well, it be, it became there yeah. was there was a split. 
There were Tiger people that wanted to see Tiger win no matter what. And then there were people that say, I want to take him down. Yeah. You're right. There, there was a divide. With Tiger, early on when he starts dominating the tour, right, you want to see the underdog win. It's like, oh, Tiger again. But then, of course, later on in Tiger's career, you want to see greatness. Like That's the way I kind of feel about Tom Brady. I really I hated Tom Brady in his earliest career. But you get to the point where it's like, man, this guy did it again. I want to see him do it again. I get it. It's incredible what he's doing. And Tiger is at that point now. You yeah. want him to win because you want to see greatness at their peak. There was, there was nobody in the world other than maybe the guys that were trying to win, but even some of them, that didn't want to see Tiger win in 2019. For sure. For sure. But